Now, by questions which come in from the, uh, our internet audience all over the world, and our, the live audience present here also can ask questions. So let's open with a question from the internet audience, and then we'll take other questions also. Think about your questions, and you have to come up here and tell us your name, and then ask the question. So the uh, first question we have, Swamiji, is from Dominic, who is um, writing from Denmark. Hi, Swami. Hope you can help me understand. Maya is an illusion, something which seems to be like something but isn't, but in the same way it must be real. Vedanta says everything is Brahman, but that means that Maya, Shakti, Prakriti is real too. In a jiva, it hides the truth about the self, but it's part of God's game, and this game includes everything, also maya. If Brahman is untouched by anything, and in the same way the source of everything, then nothing would appear or create. It needs something that causes the creation. If there is a separate thing like maya, then we are in dualism. If it comes from himself, then he becomes limited. It seems like neither dualism nor non-dualism work. It's like both and none of these. The mind can't fix it. It's a good question. Let me reduce the question to its essentials. We say Brahman is the only reality. Now we are, remember, we have made a paradigm shift from Kashmir Shaivism, which we were discussing earlier, uh, which the internet audience, of course, did not see, but to uh, Advaita Vedanta. There's a shift. Advaita Vedanta says, Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya. Jiva Brahmaheva Napara. Brahman alone is real. The world is an appearance. And you, are you real or an appearance? You are real. You are Brahman. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but then what causes the appearance of the world? Brahman is, Brahman is Satchidananda, it does not appear, or it appears as the world. But what causes it to appear as the world? And as an explanatory mechanism, Advaita Vedanta uses the, the term, the concept of Maya. Maya, the power of Brahman, which projects Brahman as this world. One of the, going back to Kashmir again, one of the great Kashmiri saints, a woman, Laleshwari. She, Laldeed or Laleshwari. What a beautiful way she, she used to have these little poems. She says, <coughs> Not knowing the self, the real self, is like, I don't know what, what water is though I drown in the ocean. And the moment I know, I am the ocean. I'm drowning in the ocean. We are all drowning in the ocean. And we are saying we don't know what water is. That's like we are immersed in Brahman. Anyway, now the question is, that we all be fine. But what about this world? We are experiencing ourselves as individual beings and a world and, and a world of experience of the, the universe which we live in. And Vedanta says it's because of Maya, Brahman alone appears with names and forms in this form, in this way. But then this Maya, is it something different from Brahman or is it the same as Brahman? If it is different, then we have dualism. That's what he's asking. There's Brahman and Brahman's Maya. There are two things. If it's the same as Brahman, then there would be no creation. Brahman is Satchidananda. Why call it Maya at all? Call it Brahman. You're using a term Maya. It must be some sense different, something new about it, something different about it. So are there two things or is there one thing? That's the question. If there's one thing, there would be no world and no individual. If there are two things, you can explain the world, but then uh, it would be dualism. It's not non-dualism. What's the answer? The answer is subtle. 
what do you mean by two things? Look at the lectern here to my left. There is a there's the lectern and you know it's made of wood. I've used two words, lectern and wood. Are there two things? It's wood alone. You know, the preliminary idea would be it's a lectern or a podium. And if you look a little deeply, you'd say, no, it's wood. The reality about it is wood, but it has the name and the form and the function of a podium. It looks like the podium and, and it has, uh, it's called a podium and it acts as a podium, but it's true and true inside and outside. All of it is nothing but wood. There are not two things here. Now, this which projects the wood as the name podium, as the form of a podium and the function of a podium, that is what is called Maya. It's not a separate thing. It's not two here. The name and the form and the function are not a second thing apart from the wood. In fact, without the, without the wood, there would be no form. You wouldn't be able to see the podium. There wouldn't be a podium. There wouldn't be a form of a podium. There wouldn't be the function of a podium. And you couldn't use the word podium. Because what would be there after all? Nothing. So there's only one thing here. That is, the reality is wood. And it functions, looks like, and in transactional reality, it is called a podium. The word is a podium. The form is of a podium. And the activity of a podium. This is Maya. Not separate. Hence, if it's not separate, it's still non-dual. You can't call it dualism because it's not separate. And yet, it produces the magic of this world. It projects the world as Brahman. It's nothing different from Brahman. One Swami explained it very wonderfully. I mean, uh, I have never thought of it that way, but it works like this. If Advaita is true, there is only one Brahman, existence, consciousness, bliss. Its essential nature is consciousness. Brahman is consciousness, pure consciousness. Now follow this carefully. The nature of consciousness is to be, to be what? To be conscious. To know. Let's take it in a very simple way. To be aware, to know, to be conscious. That's the nature of consciousness. One. But then the question will be, what will it be conscious of? What will it know? What will it be aware of? Because there is nothing, nothing other than Brahman. Since there is nothing other than Brahman, what is there for Brahman to be conscious of? Your answer will be, itself. Okay? Second thing. There is nothing else for it to be conscious of. So it will be conscious of itself. Aware of itself. What can it know? Its nature is to know. But what can it know? It can know only itself because there's nothing else. Second point. Third point. Here is the, here is the uh, fun. Can Brahman know itself? No, not in that sense. It cannot be an object of knowledge. Because it cannot be seen. It has no form. It cannot be heard. It has no sound. It cannot be tasted. Yeah. It has no taste. It cannot be smelt. It cannot be touched. It cannot be thought of. It cannot be conceived of. It cannot be spoken of. That's the nature of Brahman. It is infinite. The infinite cannot be known in a, within, in a finite act of knowledge. I'm using the words carefully. Epistemologically, a finite act of knowledge cannot grasp the infinite. And yet, see now the, the problem is, the nature of Brahman is to know, to be aware, to be conscious. It is consciousness. And what the only thing that it can be aware or know or, know or be conscious of is itself which you cannot know, which is unknowable. Brahman, the very nature is to know, and what is there to know is unknowable. Then what happens? It's like the old paradox, the immovable, the irresistible force meets the immovable object. Then what happens? Brahman must know, and yet what is there to know cannot be known. Then what will happen? Error. What happens is Maya. Error happens. It will know itself, but not as it is. As it is, is infinite unknowable. It will know itself. The unchangeable will know itself as the changeable world. The world of birth and death and change and decay. 
The infinite existence will know itself as sliced, limited existences, as things which exist. The infinite conscious will know itself as conscious uh, events, you know, thoughts, sights, ideas, smells, sounds. The infinite unlimited joy will know itself as the fleeting joys of this world. Vivekananda put it, this world is the wreckage on the wreckage of the infinite on the shores of time, space and causation. It is Brahman knowing itself. This universe is Brahman knowing itself. This phenomenon is Maya. So what do we do? If you do not know it, it's suffering. I do not know that I am Brahman. I do not know that all this is Brahman, that it's one unbroken, undivided reality. I don't know that. I now think of myself as a limited body and mind, experiencing a world populated by other limited body minds and an insentient world. And I pursued my limited ends, trying to avoid suffering and snatch a little bit of happiness, begged for a little bit of happiness from this world before it's all taken away from me. Suffering. The Buddha said, Dukkham, Dukkham, Sarvam, Dukkham. <coughs> if you dwell in Maya, see through Maya, realize it is you yourself experiencing yourself in these ways. It is joy and joy and joy. Birth and death and old age and disease, so-called unhappiness, is joy. Your joy is you yourself, knowing yourself in that joy. Your misery is also you yourself, knowing yourself in that misery. You are reflecting yourself back in the mirror of Maya. Don't misunderstand that example. You say, oh, then he will ask, in the mirror and you are different, so that is dualism. No, in this case it's not different. So, it's a remarkable thing. If it was not remarkable, it wouldn't be Maya. Maya is remarkable. What cannot be done, it, shows, it, it does it. It projects the pure subject as an object. Projects. It doesn't make the subject an object. You say, Maya creates. Look at the words you have used. If creation happens, does creation really happen? Here is the question. Advaita Vedanta says creation does not happen. If it did happen, then there would be dualism. It's still one reality. It's still Brahman. It's not that it was Brahman, then this universe has been created, and after the universe is destroyed, there will be Brahman again. No, many people misunderstand. It's Brahman right now. Will you say it was wood earlier? Now it's a podium. After you smash it and you sell it up for scrap or something, it will be wood again. No, it's wood right now. Touch it. We say touch wood. Yes. It was water earlier, now it's a wave and then it will be water again. No, it was water, as a wave it's water, and when the wave subsides back into the ocean, it's water. You were Brahman, in this body and mind experiencing this world, still Brahman. And when this body, mind and world are erased by death, by cosmic dissolution, in Samadhi, still Brahman. In deep sleep every night, still Brahman. This play is the play of Maya. It is not different from Brahman. No different than the podium is from the wood or the wave from the water. It's not different. It's you, Brahman. Non-dualism is maintained throughout. It looks like dualism. Yeah. All right, anybody here? Or are they still... In meditation, <laughs> Hamsa, come, come here. You have to ask a question here. <coughs> Please come. Please tell us your name. Do I know it? But for the sake of the internet audience, tell us your name and ask the question. My name is Rathan Dar. Swamiji Pranam. Uh, in this context, whatever you explain. Could you please explain the one of the words I read, Jene Bindu Nadu Kala Shottoni Korokala. So I cannot translate it truly. Jene Bindu Nadu Kala Shottoni Korokala. I have not heard that earlier, but I understand it immediately. It is, it is um, from, you can understand it from the Kashmiri Shaiva point of view. 
and uh, the tantra point of view bindu nada kala bindu represents the highest reality and nada is the sound the omkara which resounds which which uh, it's a vibration which led, leads to creation and all of creation are kala or kala means parts parts of shiva and there's a whole philosophy behind it much more i would say complex in one sense more sophisticated and detailed than even advaita vedanta it's it's very detailed in in kashmir shaivism uh, since that discussion preceded the this question answer session i will not go into the details and i wouldn't be able to write now without reading up so uh, it, it's it's a very sophisticated philosophy bindu bindu means literally means the dot it's the ang at the end of omkara a u ma and at end mm, it fades away into silence into bindu bindu means the dot and the dot is of course very popular in silicon valley but <laughs> the dot com but this is a, this is the cosmic dot and nada means sound but not any sound the cosmic sound and kala means the the powers of shiva shakti which creates this universe the many kalas are there kala means part all right yes thank you we have a question from sega respected swamiji in the aparaksha anubhuti class number 23 as you explained all that we see that we experience all that exists are nothing but manifestations of brahman my question is what is the difference between jiva and jara does jara bash do experience consciousness like jivas due to what karma is it jara and i am jiva let me quickly translate what the word jara means it's sanskrit word it's a sanskrit word meaning insentient so basically is asking if everything is brahman this is the question if everything is brahman that means everything is consciousness but we don't experience the world like that we experience the world as sentient beings and insentient things so here how are we experiencing the world look at what you are doing right now you see yourself as a sentient being and perhaps the people sitting next to you if they are not zombies they are also sentient beings but the chair you are sitting on you feel it's an insentient thing it's a thing and there is the harmonium here there are, there are these uh, tables and chairs and so on this world physical world insentient the sanskrit word is jada and sentient being sanskrit word is chetana conscious but but advaita seems to say everything is consciousness then what makes us sentient beings and what makes those things insentient that's the question do they have the question also is that do they also have consciousness and then what's the difference between us why do we appear to be conscious and the chair does not appear even the 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 shirt on my back does not appear to be conscious but the person the body wearing the shirt appears to be conscious the shirt does not appear to be conscious what makes the difference go by exam- by your ex- experience as you experience the world this is how we experience the world right then how do you explain it in terms of advaita vedanta it's like this pure consciousness is brahman but as we just discover, uh, discussed through maya it appears as a world as a universe and this world of the universe what does it consist of names and forms and functions what are the names and forms and functions you have bodies you have minds you have life 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 prana mind manas antakarana inner instrument physical body deha sharira body all of these and and insentient things these things all of them they are all names and forms produced by maya now among these names and forms some names and forms are there which are products of maya which have the unique capacity of reflecting of channeling consciousness it's not difficult to understand sunlight falls on everything if you go outside you'll see sunlight is falling on everything 
uh, buildings and the snow and the, 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 the trees. But of all the things sunlight is falling on, there is the lake. There are drops of water, dew drops, in which not only sunlight is falling, but a little image of the sun is formed there. When the sunlight falls on, on the rocks outside, on the street outside, the Im image of the sun is not formed there. You can't see a little sun there. You can't see it. It's not there. But if you lo look into the lake, you will see the sun in the lake. If you look into a dew drop, you will see the entire sun reflected in the dew drop in a sparkling burst of light there. So some surfaces not only reflect the sunlight, but they're capable of forming an image of the source, the sun. That's a good example. Some names and forms produced by Maya, they, they can reflect consciousness. They can channel consciousness. What are these names and forms? Very simple, you have one. It's called the mind. In fact, right now, if you look subtly, where do you find consciousness? You'll say, why? In, in, in me and in the person next to me? No, be careful there. In the person next to you, you are not experiencing consciousness. That person next to you behaves like a conscious entity, talks like a conscious entity, seems to be a conscious entity. But the way you experience awareness, consciousness, sentience, directly, first person, subjectively, within yourself, in your mind, like that you are not experiencing his or her consciousness. True or not? Look inside, directly you feel awareness. You are awareness. In fact, the one which is doing the looking inside is the awareness. What awareness is that? That is not pure consciousness. That's not Brahman as such. That's the reflection of Brahman. Reflection where? In the mind. What is the mind? It's produced by Maya. It's a name and form. Of all the names and forms produced by Maya, our subtle body, the technical term is Sukshma Sharira, can reflect consciousness. Shankaracharya in his commentary in the Bhagavad Gita to the 50th verse of the 18th chapter, 1850, there he says, how does it work? Pure consciousness shines on the buddhi, the intellect, which is part of our mind, our subtle body, which is, which is also pure. Pure here in this sense means sattvic which is pure. It's a nice reflecting medium. And so it gets identified with the buddhi. The buddhi also, the mind also shines with consciousness. The consciousness does not belong to the mind. It's borrowed from Brahman. The little sun in the lake or in the dewdrop does not belong to the dewdrop or the lake. It, it is a reflection of the real sun. Similarly, the awareness which you feel right now is not Brahman itself. It's the reflection of Brahman in our minds. And that's enough to for all our empirical purposes, to talk and speak and hear and, and love and hate and fight and, and do Vedanta, for all of that, this reflected consciousness is itself enough. So then why bother with Brahman if reflected consciousness is enough? Without Brahman, no reflected consciousness. It's like saying, at night moonlight is enough. It lights up our world and we can go about our business at night with the moonlight. Suppose there's no electricity, the moonlight. Then why do we need the sun at all? At night, we don't see the sun. So why talk about a theoretical sun at night? The moonlight is enough. What will happen if you take the sun away? No moonlight. It seems to be moonlight and we call it moonlight. It's not moonlight. It's borrowed from the sun. If I make if I may coin a neologism, the moon is moonlighting. <laughs> it's borrowing, it's, it's, its job is to get by by borrowing light from the sun. It's moonlighting. In the same way, our minds are borrowing consciousness from Brahman. And hence, here's the point, answer to your question. Hence, we appear to be conscious beings. I feel conscious, you feel conscious, we all feel conscious. But because of the presence of this subtle body here. But the other names and forms which do not have subtle bodies, which are not called sentient beings because of that, the table and the chair and that harmonium, they don't have a subtle body. So how do you know? I'll ask you, how do you know that they do? They don't seem to. 
They are not jivas. So we call them things. Objects. Things. That. Not thou. You are thou. And the chair is that. It, the only difference from Vedantic perspective, it does not have a subtle body. Hence it does not reflect consciousness. Hence it's not a sentient being. It, it neither suffers nor enjoys. Nor is it trying to avoid suffering, nor is it seeking enjoyment, nor does it want to become spiritual, nor does it feel that it is in bondage. There's nothing there. It's just a thing with a name and a form. But you say there's Brahman there? Yes, Brahman is there. But what Brahman does for the chair and the shirt and all these insentient things is Brahman lends it existence, but not consciousness. It does not lend consciousness. Why? It does not have the capacity to reflect consciousness. Just like the sunlight, it lends light to everything. But to the lake and the dewdrop, it lends its own image. You can easily connect it with the Bible. God created man in his own image. All living beings are created in the image of God. What does it mean? Does God look like that? Two hands and a head and a, and a tummy and all? No. The image of God is that reflected consciousness shining in our minds right now. That's God creating us in, in his own image. What's the image of God? What is God in, in himself and in itself? Consciousness. What's the image of God? Reflected consciousness. Directly you can understand these things. Yeah. All right. Anybody from... There was another hand here. Please come. Oh, you have to come all the way out. You, you can just ask your question. I'll repeat the question. Can you, Hi, it, my name is Bill Humans. Yes, Bill. Thank you. Um, my question is, it has to do with the, the two questions, the three questions that have already been asked. In bhakti religions, yes. um, God is conceived as having a will. Yes. A will for us. Uh, which involves right and wrong, but a will for us. Yes. Uh, how does that uh, work with Advaita Vedanta, yes. in which uh, God is conceived as Brahman, Sat Chitananda, yeah. pure consciousness, which couldn't possibly have a will? Have a will, yes. Thank you. So there's a question. In the bhakti religions, the devotional religions, God is conceived of having a will. Not only a will, God is all loving. God is just. God has a purpose for us. And God relates to us in some relation. God is the father in the Semitic religions. But in Hinduism, also the bhakti traditions, God is the father, God is the mother, God is the friend, God is the lover, God is the child. All these relations are possible in the bhakti religions. Vivekananda put it this way. The idea is... To divinize your relationship with all beings, all living beings. They are all God, my beloved Lord in all these forms. It's still bhakti. And to humanize your relationship with the divine. Who is the divine to me? I'm this person. So who is the divine to me? My father. I am the child. My master. I am the servant. My mother. I am the child. And so on. Now how does this work with Brahman? which is the absolute, which is existence, consciousness, bliss. In Advaita Vedanta, the question is, what is the relationship of the absolute existence, consciousness, bliss, pure being, pure consciousness, pure bliss? What is the relationship of that with the God of religion? This is the question. How does Advaita see that? Advaita calls the God of religion Saguna Brahman, <coughs> Brahman with qualities. And the Brahman, the ultimate reality is called Nirguna Brahman, Brahman beyond attributes. So Sat, Chit, Ananda are not the attributes of Brahman. They are Brahman itself. Brahman is not something which has existence. Brahman is existence itself, being itself. Brahman is not something which is conscious. It is consciousness itself. We are beings who are conscious. We have borrowed consciousness from the ocean of consciousness that is Brahman. So we are conscious beings. Brahman is not happy. Not unhappy either. Brahman is happiness itself. So those existence, consciousness, bliss are not attributes of Brahman. They are Brahman itself. Even more radically they would say that the only reason we call it existence is because it's not that it does not exist. 
That's why we are calling it existence. The only reason we are calling it consciousness is because it's not insentient. Only reason we are calling it bliss is because it's not misery. That's why we are calling it that. Otherwise, even any kind of positive attribution is not uh, acceptable to Advaitins. But how is this rela relevant to Vishnu or Sh my beloved Shiva or my beloved Divine Mother or Krishna or Jesus or the Father in Heaven? How is it related? This Brahman, Nirguna Brahman, Brahman beyond attributes with Maya, we are talking about Maya, is the god of religion, Saguna Brahman. The, the possession of Maya, the presence of Maya, the very conception of Maya, gives these glories to the Absolute. What glories? All-powerful, all-knowing, just, merciful, loving, kind. One who wants to rescue us from samsara. Doesn't Brahman want to rescue us from samsara? Not at all. Brahman couldn't care less. From Brahman's point of view, there is no samsara. I mean, what about me? From Brahman's point of view, you are Brahman. Why would Brahman want rescuing? It's God who rescues us. So, Advaita Vedanta takes a step down. So, does Advaita Vedanta admit two kinds of Brahman? Satchidananda, Nirguna Brahman, and a God of religion, Saguna Brahman. So, two Brahmans? No, as you would realize, not at all. Because the uh, Advaita Vedanta is uncompromising. From the ultimate point of view, there is only the Absolute, Satchidananda. The moment you speak about God, you are back in the relative world, the world of Maya. Here, let's talk about here and now. Here we are, individual beings, trying to be spiritual, coping with our lives. I know I am not the body and mind, but still I have to cope, I have to feed the body every day, I have to take medicines, I have to house the body. Most of my life is about the body. And I say I am not the body. <laughs> Most of it is about this thing called the body. So let's talk about here and now. In this case, in this here and now, if I am this person and this is my life, then where is Brahman for me? If that's the question you ask, Advaita Vedanta says, then for you, if you take that standpoint, if you stubbornly persist in that, then Brahman for you is the god of religion. Right now, Brahman for you is your beloved Krishna or Ramakrishna or Christ, is your beloved Jesus or uh, your uh, Narayana or Shiva or Divine Mother or the Father in Heaven. In whichever conception, there can be infinite conceptions of God. Why? Because God is infinite. If this world, which is a pro projection of God or a creation of God, whichever way you have it, if this is so full of variety and richness, imagine the Creator. Yes? So, you can have multiple names, multiple forms, many manifestations, many ways of understanding God. Are they all true? Here is a delicate answer from Advaita Vedanta. Do you think you are true right now? This body, mind, this world, does it feel real to you? Yes, it does. No matter how much Vedanta we read. If it feels real to you, God is also real to you. But Advaita insists from the absolute point of view, what is the world? Appearance. What are you? Brahman. Then what will God be? Brahman. If you are Brahman, God is also Brahman. Thank you very much. <laughs> Saguna Brahman is actually Nirguna Brahman. You, this ancient being, you are actually Nirguna Brahman. And this world is an appearance of Brahman. So why call it an appearance? What harm has the world done? Why can't it actually be Brahman? It's also actually Brahman. Yeah. It's also Brahman. Swami Turiyananda, the great Vedantin, all his life he said, Brahman alone is real and the world is false. And I am Brahman. The last thing he said before passing away, last but one. He said, Brahman is real, the world is real, the world is none other than Brahman. Glory to Ramakrishna, Jai Ramakrishna. That was the last but one thing he said before he passed away. You'll be curious, what's the last thing he said? The last thing he said was, Satyam Jnanam Anantam Brahma. Brahman, and then this Brahman which is real and the world which is none other than Brahman and I who am none other than Brahman and Ramakrishna is none other than Brahman. Then what is this Brahman? 
infinite existence consciousness is Brahman. Satyam Jnana Manantam Brahma. And he passed away. It's from Taittiriya Upanishad. Good. It's a good question. Thank you. Uh, this next question is from Krishna. Uh, Swamiji, in one of the videos you had mentioned that Advaitic meditation is preferred over yogic meditation. So I am curious to know why Advaitic meditation is preferred. All right. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's the way I put it. I try to play fair, but my preferences come out with no uncertain terms. Because you sound like you are saying you prefer Advaitic meditation over yogic meditation. But what's the difference between yogic meditation and Advaitic meditation? Meditation is basically focusing the mind. It could be concentrating on something, concentrating on Om, concentrating on the beloved form of my Krishna or um, Ramakrishna, or it could be just awareness, follow the breath. Not con concentrating on anything in particular, just awareness. So, basically it is a kind of focus of the mind. Not letting the mind drift. That's meditation. But then of what you focus on and what is the purpose behind it that distinguishes yogic meditation from Advaitic meditation. To, for, for precision and clarity, let me say, when I say yogic meditation, I mean Patanjali Yoga. The Yoga Sutras. When I say Advaitic meditation, I mean Nididhyasana. When you ask for practice of Advaita, they say hearing, thinking, meditating. That meditating, hearing, thinking, meditating. That meditating is Nididhyasana. What's the difference? Yogic meditation is concentration of mind. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodhaha. It's defined in the second sutra of the Yoga Sutras. Yoga is the, the cessation of the modifications of the mind. The mind thinks of this and that and the other things. And if you can focus it, thinks about this only, this only, this only. Then the mind becomes absorbed in one vritti, one thought. And from there to no thought. Yoga chitta vritti nirodha. So it's a, it's a way of technique of quietening the mind into the deepest level of quietness. Why would you want to do that? Of course, it sounds nice and it's very, very peaceful. Very, very peaceful. You can't have more peace than that in this world. But there's a purpose behind it because the second sutra says, Tada drashtu swarupe avasthanam. Then the witness consciousness is appreciated in its real nature. Second, third sutra of the Yoga Sutras. So witness consciousness is appreciated in its real nature in Samadhi, in the deepest yogic meditation. What about other times when I'm thinking? When I'm not meditating? Fourth Sutra. Vritti Sarupya Mitaratra. At other times, the witness consciousness is mixed up with the movements of the mind. Anger. I am angry. You don't say, I am the witness consciousness of anger in the mind. No. <laughs> you yell and scream and... <laughs> I am angry. Immediately. Witness consciousness obscured by, identified by, mixed up with the movements of the mind. That is the purpose of the whole scheme of yogic meditation. How is this different from Advaitic meditation? It's different. There's a subtle difference. In Advaitic meditation, the aim is not to suppress or quieten or, um, you know, reduce the mind to no thought. Rather, it is to appreciate the truth about yourself. I am Brahman. Aham Brahmasmi. And stay there. That is Advaitic meditation. You learn Vedanta from... That's why Advaitic meditation comes at the end of study, hearing these truths, thinking it through, arguing it through, Clearing all your doubts, getting the conviction, getting the clarity. After you are convinced and clear, there is clarity. You understand what Vedanta says. You know that there is something called Brahman and you understand it and you, 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 have, you are more or less ready, ready with this clarity. I am Brahman, not the body and mind. I am the ground of this universe, Satchidananda. Now is the time for Vedantic meditation. To stabilize yourself in that. Otherwise, habits of mind 
accumulated throughout a lifetime of wrong thinking and lifetimes of long thinking. They'll keep sweeping you back into, you know you are Brahman, you keep acting as Mr. X or Mrs. Y. You keep reacting to the world with pleasure or pain. You know, with suffering or the desire for hankering for enjoyment and the fear of suffering. All these natural reactions are still there. They have to be erased by stabilizing yourself. That stabilization. Look at the word used for an enlightened person in the Gita. Sthita Pragya. One of stabilized wisdom. Not a person who has realized Brahman. Not a person who gets a flash. Oh, I know I'm Brahman. Not yet. Take it easy. Settle down there. And meditate upon what you have what you have, no, what you have read, what you are convinced about, what you are clear about, stay with it. That staying with it is Vedantic meditation. Let me give you differences. Shankaracharya in his uh, Aparokshanubhuti, he gives 15 techniques of meditation, or 15 steps of Vedantic meditation. And mischievously, playfully, he uses the terms of yogic meditation. Asana, they are all borrowed. Completely plagiarized from Patanjali without the slightest uh, uh, you know, hint of shame or any kind of acknowledgement. They are borrowed from Patanjali. No, he acknowledges actually towards the end of the book. The, the terms are deliberately borrowed from yogic meditation and then subverted. I'll show you how. He says pranayama. You know what is pranayama in, yoga, in Patanjali meditation? Eight, eight limbs of yoga. Not steps, limbs of yoga, eight parts of yoga. What are the eight parts? Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. What do they mean? Yama and Niyama, the moral prerequisites, discipline. Basically a clean life, clear up your life. Third, Asana, sitting. You learn it in yoga schools, different ways of sitting. You have to learn how to sit. Yes, there's a lot to learn about sitting. So sitting. And then breathing. So now I have to learn about breathing. I've been doing it since... My... Yes, there's a lot to learn about breathing. One of the first yoga teachers who came here, I think B.K.S. Iyengar, he writes in his book, Lights on Yoga? Yeah, he writes, um, uh, writes there. When he started his school in USA, for the first time the Western people started coming to him, he said, I was surprised to see the people are barely breathing. They're so tight. They're barely breathing. No matter all, no, no, um, no wonder all kinds of diseases and afflictions and physical and psychosomatic, they all come on you if you don't do the basic function of your life, which is breathing. Afterwards comes uh, eating and sleep and exercise and all of that. Breathing. They are hardly breathing. So breathing, that's the third step. Third limb, pranayama. No, fourth, fourth one, pranayama. Fifth one is pratyahara. Now you are ready to enter into meditation. You have to withdraw. Stop seeing, stop hearing, stop checking that thing on the phone, that infernal device. Switch it off. No, really, don't even keep it on. Switch it off. If you keep it on, a part of your mind will be there. And it, it announces its presence by buzzes and tings and dings and all. So switch it off. Pratyahara, withdraw. Withdraw. Our senses continuously flow outside. Withdraw from the outside to the inside. We call Pratyahara. I remember I was giving a talk once. This was in London in a, in a seminar. And uh, the, the president who was presiding over the over this session she, uh, this Indian lady, very erudite, she's a retired diplomat, she was India's ambassador to Spain, but she is uh, heading these um, cultural events. So she was there. I said, the Upanishad says, Paran chikhani vetrinat swayam bhutasmat parang pashyati nantaratman. The Upanishad says, our senses are turned outwards. We continuously see things outside, hear things and smell and touch and taste. And so we are aware of the external world. We are not aware of the self within. So we are continuously seeing out there. Then she stood up and said, The Swami just said that we are 
continuously looking outwards, out there. If it were only so, that wouldn't be so bad at all. We are all looking at our screens, not even looking out there. And she said, if you looked at, the na at nature and the world and at people, that would be so nice. I mean, I saw this little picture um, where it shows a group of teenagers. They're all hanging out together, American or European, hanging out together, all sitting on the ground somewhere. And all of them are looking at their own mobile phones. They're all sitting next to each other. None of them looking at each other, talking to each other. They're, they're, all, they're happy to be together, but they don't interact. They are interacting with the phones. Pratyahara, withdraw, withdraw. Then, dharana, focus, focus. Unbroken focus, dhyana, meditation. And that meditation deepens into samadhi, the highest absorption. That all, that's also savikalpa samadhi, sampragyata samadhi, samadhi with an object. And then that will go away, no more thought in the mind, asampragyata samadhi. So that's yoga, Patanjali yoga. What does uh, Shankaracharya have to say about it? I'll give you one example and stop, we have run out of time. This clearly distinguishes between yogic meditation and advaitic meditation. He talks about, he uses the term pranayama. Pranayama with breathing. What is breathing? Breathing in, puraka. Kumbhaka, holding the breath. Then breathing out, rechaka. Then breathing in, then you hold the breath outside, bahya kumbhaka. Then breathing in again, puraka, from the other nostril. Then hold the breath. Then release it through this nostril. What does that do? Breathing calms the mind. So that's pranayama, right? Yogic pranayama. What does Shankaracharya say? What is Vedantic meditation? He says, Vedantic meditation is breathing out. It starts with breathing out. Breathing out, the world is an appearance. There is no real world out there apart from me, Brahman. Nothing out there. It's all in my consciousness. World is an appearance. Jagat Mithya. That's breathing out. <coughs> breathing in. Aham Brahmasmi. I am Satchidananda. I am Brahman. Hold the breath. Stay there. Aham Brahmasmi. Breathing out. The world is an appearance. Breathing in. Brahman alone is real. Stay there. I am Brahman. This is. He says. This is Vedantic meditation. He calls it the higher, higher pranayama. This is Vedantic pranayama. This is Vedantic breathing. And it actually happens. Um, Swami Shraddhananda, who was there in Sacramento. Some of the seniors might have seen him. Swami Shraddhananda. Um, he told this story. One day he saw Swami Subodhananda, who was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, sitting in Belurdmat near Swami Vivekananda's room. Uh, long after Swami Vivekananda had passed away. He would sit there and read. So one day he's sitting there and reading and uh, he's looking up and laughing. If you look up from that place, you'll see the Ganges and Calcutta on the other side. So he's looking up and laughing and reading and looking up and laughing. So Swami Shraddhananda couldn't restrain his curiosity anymore. He went and asked Swami Subodhananda, Swami, what are you reading and why? what are you looking at and why are you laughing? And Swami Subodhananda said, you know, I'm reading here, it's a Vedanta book. Basically, this book says, Brahman alone is real, the world is false. When I look up, when I read Brahman is real, and I look up, and I see everything is Sri Ramakrishna. And the river, and the city, and the skies, and everything is Sri Ramakrishna. Brahman, basically, it means everything is Brahman. And I read again, the world is an appearance, the world is false. And I look up, and I see everything he says, Mountains of ashes. It's nothing, nothing, nothing. There are two ways of looking at the world. Name and form and function, that's what is important to us in the world. That's nothing from the point of view of Brahman, from the point of view of an enlightened person. And the reality beneath Brahman, which is hidden from our sight, that's revealed to them. So, breathing in, I am Brahman, the reality. Breathing out, everything else is an appearance. Breathing in, Brahman alone is real. Holding the breath, stay there, I am Brahman. Breathing out, the world is an appearance. 
That is Vedantic pranayama compared to yogic pranayama. What is yogic pranayama? And then Shankaracharya mischievously adds a little twist in the tale. He says, so this is the real pranayama. This is Vedantic pranayama, Vedantic breathing. And the other one, he says, he uses the word, the other one is torturing the nose. Is <laughs> mere torture of the nose. One caution here. He, if you read those 15 things which he has explained, they are wonderful, they are very profound. Your mind immediately quietens down just by reading it, let alone doing it. But it's, it's not meant as a critique of, of Patanjali Yoga. Because Shankaracharya himself at the end says that the Patanjali Yoga, the yogic meditation, the yogic techniques are very good as preliminaries. If you just straight away start, drop all practices, you don't know how to sit, you don't know how to breathe, breathe. your mind is scattered in a hundred different directions and you say, world is false, Brahman is real. Very soon it will become the Brahman is false, world is real. <laughs> it will not work. It sounds nice on paper. It will not work unless the mind and body are disciplined. And that discipline comes through Patanjali Yoga. Okay. Can we take one more question from the audience? Let, some, let me know when the... And they are ready with the food downstairs. Yes, there's a question. Please come. Yeah. Oh, the two of two. You have a question too? Oh. Yes, please come. Who, who had a question? Yes, please come here. Okay, Pat. <laughs> Please speak into the microphone because then the people around the world can. Well, the people around the world will hear you if you speak into the microphone. I have a question on this very point. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> I started out in Zen and Chan. Yes. So, comparing, trying to practice this, the two different forms of meditation. How on earth, in Vedantic meditation, do you make your mind one-pointed? If you are thinking about uh, the golden light in your heart, you're thinking about the gold, etc., etc. It seems much harder. And does one conclude from that that the one-pointed mind is not of importance in Vedanta? Okay. The question is, how does one make the mind one-pointed? Because to make the mind one-pointed seems to be the purpose in Patanjali Yoga. Right? And Zen, um, the different schools of Zen, they emphasize long hours of sitting in meditation. Yes, it's lovely. Yes. <laughs> I wish we had more here. Yes. We did do some of that today. <laughs> um, now, how do you make the mind one point? Is the mind important? Is it important to have the one-pointed mind in Advaita Vedanta? And how do you make it one-pointed? First of all, is it important? Yes. Concentration is important for anything in life. You want to make money, you need concentration. You want to be an artist and you want to play music, you need concentration. Enormous amounts of it. Not just focus of the mind, focus of your entire life on that one thing. Otherwise, you can't excel at anything. So concentration, one-pointedness of mind is essential. Something that is very much lacking and growing worse in today's digital world. Most of you are not of that generation which is most afflicted. But if you are teachers and educators and parents, you know what, what I'm talking about. You know, Daniel Goleman, he wrote this book. He's, he's, Daniel Goleman is known for his work on emotional intelligence. That's how he became well-known, famous. But his latest work is on concentration. It's called Focus. The book is called Focus. So concentration of mind is very important. And it's very important in Advaita Vedanta also. Without concentration of mind, Vedanta will not work. So what follows? You'll be glad to know Advaita Vedanta recognizes the importance of one-pointed mind and says, wait for it. You have to come to Vedanta with a one-pointed mind. You already got a one-pointed mind. We are not going to bother about that. 
you have got exceptionally high levels of concentration you've got peace of mind you've got folk focus then only i'm going to open the door to you who says if you look at any vedanta textbook it starts with four preliminary qualifications and they insist on that viveka a kind of intuitive differentiation between the eternal and the non-eternal vairagya a dispassion and active disregard for the non-eternal and a quest for the eternal third sixfold discipline and the sixfold discipline the first one is is quiet mind second one is quiet senses third one is spiritual fortitude not being shaken by the troubles of the world in in your pursuit of vedanta the fourth one is one pointed mind samadhana a mind which settles deeply into vedanta swami trigunatidananda disciple of sri ramakrishna talk about one pointed mind they all had it trigunatidananda how he is studying vedanta a textbook he gets up and opens the book as soon as there's enough light in the morning to start reading the book he reads forgets food forgets bathing forgets this forgets that gets up from his seat only when it is dark and he can't read the book anymore the whole day has gone past and he lights a lamp and reads the book again goes on that's one pointedness he's forgotten the world swami vivekananda meditating in kashipur and his whole face becomes covered with mosquitoes you think how is that possible i invite you to calcutta <laughs> and i shall de- i shall demonstrate <coughs> that's why you need a mosquito net his face is covered with mosquitoes he is in deep meditation he does not feel it he'll feel it when it comes out of meditation or oh, he'll feel it definitely but he does not feel it when he's in meditation that's one pointedness of mind he said swami vivekananda said the only way to knowledge is concentration of mind he said the difference between an ordinary person and an extraordinary person lies in the degree of concentration difference in concentration so what follows is patanjali yoga useful absolutely absolutely patanjali yoga that's why we have japa we have meditation uh, doing your work with attention all of that making a habit of paying attention throughout our life and then you pay attention in meditation and then you pay attention in vedanta so vedanta assumes it does not train you to have a concentrated mind it assumes you have a pretty high level of concentration with the one pointedness speak example, speak into that no, please speak in, into the Oh, microphone. Oh. In, in, into the microphone. microphone yeah. Oh, oh. I've been told to um, think of the light in your heart, but I don't really see how you um, become one-pointed that way. That's the problem for me. It, think of the light. I see a light, a little chamber, <coughs> etc. That's different from holding on to a koan. You know, you never let it go. Hmm. and and what <laughs> what am i to do look thinking about a light in your heart or a form in your heart a symbol in your heart these are all forms of yoga of of upasana not yet vedanta right what vedanta would say is let me give you a difference between this and a vedantic uh, approach in the drigdrishya viveka you have any thought that comes to your mind any thought you say swami nothing comes to mind okay nothing the technique here is one you who or what is aware of that thought or the absence of thought so a thought comes 2 plus 2 is 4 if that thought ever comes 2 plus 2 is 4 what is i am the consciousness in which this 2 plus 2 4 comes but that's hard and easily your mind easily runs off <laughs> ah follow this carefully she said it's hard and the mind easily runs off follow this carefully what do you mean by the mind running off something else comes right 
Now, in Patanjali Yoga, you would be expected to pull your mind back from that something else to your object of, to the light in your heart or whatever. In Vedantic meditation, you're not expected to pull your mind back from that. Something else comes, X, Y or Z. All you need to do is, so this X, Y or Z I'm aware because of my consciousness. Another thought comes, the food is ready, which it is. <laughs> and what Vedanta says is, this thought itself is coming in my own awareness. Everywhere, every thought that rises, let it go, let the mind go anywhere, let it run the, the New York Marathon. Let it run everywhere. Wherever it runs, every thought is arising in awareness, is it not? Where else is it arising? Hard, though. That's much harder. It's much easier, I would say. If you think that it's harder, then what is easier? It's easier to hold on to a Kwan, then hold on to a Kwan. Holding on to a Kwan is also a, a kind of yogic practice. It's focusing on one thing. Even there, the mind will wander away from the Kwan. And you have to bring it back to the Kwan. It's, after a long practice, it becomes very natural to hold on to the Kwan. The Kwan in the, as in Japanese Zen. It's the same thing with Patanjali meditation. Mind goes away, bring it back. Goes away again, bring it back. It stays there, stays there, good, that's meditation. Vedantic meditation is, mind goes away, where does it go? Mind going away means a thought comes in the mind. Where does the thought come? Are you aware of the thought? Yes, then you are awareness. That's all Vedanta wants to say. Another thought comes, good, you are awareness. No thought comes. That no thought is also experienced in awareness. You are awareness. Drigdrishya Viveka. Look at the way they, look at the technique they, they give. Kamadya Chittaga Drishya Tatsakshitvena Chetanam. What is the practice? Whatever comes to mind, Drishya means an object of vision, what is, what is experienced. Whatever comes to mind, look at, they're talking about Vedantic meditation, what, what, what comes to mind? Desire, karma, anger, irritation, peace, love, whatever comes to mind. How, what can be easier than this? Let the mind do whatever it does. Just note that the consciousness is witness to these thoughts. Don't be a witness. Many people don't, they miss, it's a very subtle point. You are already a witness to the thought. Just note the fact that it's, it's effortless. If you're making an effort, you're not doing Vedantic meditation. Tell me, how much effort does it take to know that you are Pat? I've been trying to forget I'm Pat. I've been trying to forget that I'm Pat. So it's, it, so it's not at all easy to forget that you're Pat, right? It takes no effort to know that you are Pat. Exactly in the same way, if you understand Vedanta, it takes no effort to know that you are consciousness. When are you consciousness? When are you not consciousness? What reminds you that you are consciousness? Everything reminds you that you are consciousness. See, there are so many objects here. There's a Christmas tree, and there are flowers, there are the, uh, the uh, pictures of uh, Ramakrishna, Sharada Devi, and Swami Vivekananda. There is the uh, altar, and there is the, 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 the rugs are there, and the Swami is there. So many things. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. But they're all revealed to you in one light. That light which is shining on this. You are seeing the tree in that light. So the tree has its own light too. And you're seeing the pictures in that light. You're seeing the altar in that light. You're seeing this flower in that light. What you're seeing when you see this flower? You're seeing flower plus light. Without light. What's being reflected from this? Light. What enters into your eyes? Light. The flower doesn't enter into your eyes. It's light alone. Same light reflected in all of these things, it shows you these things. So in the same way, you are that awareness in which the mind is thinking of a Kwan, is trying to think of a golden light, is unable to think of a golden light, your mind is scattered here and there, mind thinks it's fat, and immediately struggles to forget that it's fat. <laughs> all of that is happening in you, the awareness. What could be easier? Alright, good question. We'll end with that and proceed on to more um, from spiritual food to mundane food. But that's, that food is also Brahman.
शातिशाते हरि ओ तत्सत्मकृष्णारूपणमस्तु A very happy new year to all of you. We had a wonderful year together here in the uh, New York Vedanta Society over this last year, and uh, we look forward to further riches in the year year to come. Further spiritual riches, exploring Vedanta together, moving towards enlightenment together in the year to come. <laughs>